The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles. If you would, let's turn to Romans chapter 14. This evening we are studying, again, the Baptist acrostic, and our subject is the letter I, which stands for Individual Soul Liberty. Now, we've spent many weeks studying this acrostic, and since we've had so many sermons on the different letters, uh, I don't think that we really need to go back through the entire list and repeat uh, why we're studying this subject, what that's all about. I think most of you here, if not all of you, are homegrown, so you're familiar with what we're doing. And we've noted that many of the doctrines that are represented by these letters are common to Christians, that not all denominations, uh, denominational churches would disagree with us on everything that we have here. Uh, and so we're not in dispute with some people about things that are taught in the Baptist acrostic. But on the other hand, there are other hand there are things that are quite controversial, and church history proves that there are sharp and very important divisions over some of these doctrines. And even among Baptists, there will be differences, and that's because of that letter A in the acrostic that stands for the autonomy of the local church, which basically says there isn't an organized body that stands over us and says. You all have to come to agreement on doctrine. Everybody must believe the same thing. We don't have that kind of an organizational structure. However, it is amazingly remarkable how that Baptists down through the centuries have mostly agreed on all the major doctrines of the Scripture. And you, and you might say that is just supernatural because God has kept His church, His, His people, believing the right things about the doctrines of the Scriptures. Baptists uh, are generally agreed on the subject that we want to talk about tonight, on soul liberty. At least in theory, Baptists are nearly in perfect agreement on this, although in practice some Baptists abrogate the principle by uh, imposing extra-biblical reg regulations upon people, and they do that mostly to control, and uh, that actually is a violation of freedom of the soul. But one of the things that we can be proudest about as Baptists is that we do believe in freedom. That we do believe that people ought to be able to worship in the way that they choose to according to the conviction of their own hearts. And Baptists have actually helped to shape that freedom, this freedom that we have in America today, to worship the Lord according to the dictates of our heart. And I want to talk to you about that tonight. But before I do... I want to read our text and reestablish the doctrine. Our text is Romans chapter 14, where Paul opens up this concept of soul liberty. I'm not going to read all of these verses as we did last time, so we're just going to look at the first five verses where we meet this principle of soul liberty. Romans 14, verse number 1. Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things... Another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up. 
for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now we notice particularly the last part of verse number 5, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Soul liberty is about the ability that God has given every individual to know and to understand God's will for his life. Now, if I've ta- as I've taught you many times, uh, God's will is synonymous with his word. And so if you understand the word of God, you will understand the will of God. And soul liberty is that divine capacity for reading and understanding what God says in the Bible. And any person can read the Bible. If you can read, you can read the Bible. And if you can't read, you can hear the Bible. Any person can hear the Bible. Anybody can listen to it. But soul liberty is not the same as saying that there is understanding that is possible. Understanding the Bible is actually possible for every person. And soul liberty in that regard is only important for those that are born again and are led by the Holy Spirit. However, soul liberty does have an application to the lost. And that is, it says that there is no one who can force another person into a belief system. No one is allowed to bring someone kicking and screaming to the church and to put them under some kind of obligation to receive Christ as Savior. That would never work anyway. But we can't force people to believe. And unfortunately, many people who believe in, uh, who, who dispute rather, the doctrine of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit characterize it exactly that way. They have the idea that the effectual call of the Spirit means that there is no choice involved, that if you are the elect of God, that you will become a believer whether you want to be or not. And that is actually a disingenuous distortion of what that doctrine teaches. Every person who comes to Christ does come to him willingly. Every person who comes makes a personal choice of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They choose to repent and believe. But the effectual call of the Spirit is the thing that makes that possible. It's the Holy Spirit working in our heart that makes it possible. And that effectual call of the Spirit makes sure that we do answer the call and that we do make a right choice, even though that choice is completely voluntary. And so a person who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit will always choose life over death, and he will be joyfully excited and appreciative that God has enabled him to do it. But that's another doctrine, and we need to move on from there. Soul liberty affects both the saved and the lost, but it affects them in different ways. Now, last week I gave you a definition of soul liberty that will help you to get started and get a, a firm footing in understanding it. So I'll give you that definition again so uh, you can look at it and think about it and apply it as we continue on in this second part of the message. So what is soul liberty? Soul liberty is that God has given freedom and the ability for the individual to know and respond to his will. There are choices that each of us make. Now we, we do extend some liberty to the lost in the sense that there is no one forced to Uh, allowed to force a lost person into a belief system. Nobody can force another person to become a Christian. And Christianity is not an earthly conquering kingdom. That's been sorely misunderstood in the past by some Christian denominations who thought it was their right to put the hammer down 
on anyone who refused to bow to popes and prelates. And we're going to take a, a moment to look at that perversion of doctrine before we're finished with the message tonight. But going back to last week, we began with the affirmation of soul liberty. Does the Bible actually teach it? And if we are to affirm it as one of our doctrines, we must be able to find it in the Bible. The B in our acrostic says we have to have that. The B says biblical authority. And as Baptists, we don't believe we can establish any doctrine unless it can be found in the Bible. So Baptists teach that the sole source of faith and practice is the Scripture. Well, soul liberty is in fact found in the Scriptures. We've just read it here in Romans chapter 14. Paul teaches it. Romans 14:12 says that each of us is going to give an account to God, that we do make choices, we choose right and wrong, we choose our doctrines and what we are to believe about them, we choose how the Bible should be interpreted, and as individuals we're going to be held accountable for the choices that we make. And so we would be better better be very very sure that we make the right choices and all those choices are dictated by the conscience and these, these different things that we see in Scripture show us that there is a liberty of conscience. Now, the Bible doesn't say that the Lord is going to judge corporations and that he will judge governments and religious institutions, and not, at least not in the sense that we're talking tonight. But what he does do is he judge the individuals in each of those. He judge individuals in government, individuals in corporations, individuals in churches, and every one of us is going to stand for ourselves and give an account to God. And so when you appear before God, there's not going to be a corporate lawyer who will be there to argue your case. You will stand before God. You will not be able to call in the neighborhood and say, it's the neighborhood that caused me to do what I do. It's where I was born and, and who I associate with. That's their problem, not mine. It's their fault. God's not going to call in the neighborhood. He's going to call in you, and you will answer to God individually. Now, there are clear examples of soul liberty in the ministry of Jesus. No one was ever forced to follow him. He had the power to bring the entire Jewish nation under his control. He had the power to establish the kingdom when he was on the earth. But we find Jesus didn't do that. Instead, there were men who had the liberty to deny him and then to put Jesus on the cross. He was crucified, and that was a matter of their own choice. Now, interestingly, the paradox of divine sovereignty versus human responsibility is revealed side by side in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. He said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now there Peter says it was God that determined that Jesus should be delivered up under death, unto death. He said it is the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and that foreknowledge and counsel extended to the ones who did the deed. And yet we find in verses 37 and 38 of that same chapter that the people realized that they were fully responsible themselves for what was done to Christ. They crucified him. And so they cried out with convicted hearts and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent. In the Old Testament, we find 
that soul liberty was affirmed when Joshua said to the people, Choose you this day whom you will serve. And we could just go on showing that the Bible does affirm soul liberty. The next we looked at the limitations of soul liberty. Soul liberty is freedom in the Lord, and it ends when it comes in conflict with God. Our right to choose is not greater than God's right to command and to insist upon obedience. And so in our choices, our soul liberty stops when it comes to contention. We don't have the right to destroy the unity of the body with our personal opinions. Now, verse number 15 of our text says that we're not to destroy a brother by causing him to stumble over our opinions, even when our opinions may be right. Sometimes we have to forego our rights in, in order for the good of the body. There isn't a personal opinion that we can hold that's worth uh, causing contingents in the church, anything that destroys the peace of the church. So in other words, getting your way is not a high priority for the church. That's not what we're really trying to do. We want to avoid divisions and contentions. So so liberty also gives us the ability to interpret the Scriptures, but it doesn't give us a right to destroy the proper meaning of Scripture. Truth isn't relative. And so whatever the Bible has to say to one of us, it says to all of us, we all have to accept the same truth. The Scriptures are binding upon us all, which does not make truth subjective and equally valid with conflicting interpretations. Now, now let me also emphasize this as a point of review. If you love soul liberty, then you also have to remember the privilege that that goes with it, or which, with com what comes with that privilege is, is a great responsibility. That you are responsible to test your beliefs in the whole counsel of God's Word. Your interpretations have to fit the puzzle of God's Word. If you're, if you're always, always trying to drive square pegs into round holes and you are content to leave it there, then your soul liberty has just run out. You are responsible for your own growth in the Word. I mean, you've got to learn. You've got to be responsible. To, uh, you are responsible to prove your leaders. You are responsible to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You are responsible to persevere in the faith. You may revel in the right to choose, but your freedom can become a curse to you if you choose in the wrong way. But now I want to move on to the area that I want to talk to you about tonight, and that is how that soul liberty has figured into the history of the church. So thirdly, we're going to look at the destruction of soul liberty. Now from a historical perspective, just like every other blessed doctrine that we have in the Word of God, Satan has tried to destroy it. He twists it, he perverts it. He always has. Since the first day that God created Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden, uh, Satan has perverted this doctrine. And we can go all the way back to the Old Testament and we can see the beginnings of soul liberty's destruction. We see it in so many ways through the work of Satan. But that's not where we want to dwell tonight because we want to see how, does, how has this affected Baptists. Now we're studying the doctrine as it pertains to the Baptist church. And since there isn't a Baptist church in the Old Testament, we don't need to go back there. But we do need to look at the New Testament. And we need to follow Baptists down through the centuries to see how soul liberty has been eroded and then, in fact, restored, especially in this country, by those who call themselves Baptists. Now, the Baptist church is New Testament. It was founded 
by the Lord Jesus Christ in his personal ministry. We weren't called Baptists then because the Lord didn't see fit to give his church a name. There wasn't a need for it because there was only one church at that time. If you wanted to give it a name, perhaps you could call it the Church of the Living God. That's what Paul called it, the Church of the Living God. And this is the church that steadfastly continued in the Apostles' Doctrine. And the Doctrine of Soul Liberty shows up very early in church history through the persecution of the church. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9, if you will, to a passage where we find someone that you're very familiar with who was an enemy of soul liberty, and that was the Apostle Paul who was formerly known as Saul. And when he was Saul, he was an enemy of soul liberty. In Acts chapter 9 and in verse number 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now this is Saul. This is before his conversion. And before his conversion, he was a vigorous opponent of soul liberty. It was his job to go and find Christians and to force them uh, to leave their beliefs in Christ, to return to Judaism. He was intent on stopping the spread of Christianity by enforcing a ban that said, you cannot worship God the way that you want to worship Him. And so he would say to Christians, you cannot worship God in this way, and we're going to do everything we can to stop you from doing it. And so he took Christians to prison. He was an enemy of soul liberty. But Paul was wondrously converted. He became a Baptist, and then he was loath. Uh, to consider what he was before and what he'd done against Christians. He marveled at the grace of God in his own life so that he said, I was before a blasphemer, before I was injurious, before I was a persecutor. He was a destroyer of soul liberty. But then he became a proponent of it. And then he gave us scriptures like we've just read in Romans chapter 14. Now you can see that as a Pharisee, he thought that he was doing the right thing. He thought that he was doing God's will by forcing people into compliance with what he thought was God's religion. And this happened to all the apostles when they were preaching in the synagogues that the Jews persecuted them, the Jews beat them, they put them into prison, they told them to quit preaching the Word of God. Because this is what persecution always does. It seeks to destroy soul liberty. Well, in AD 70... Jerusalem was destroyed, and with it, out went the influence of Judaism over Christianity. But that did not end the persecution. Rome became the new persecutors, and it was Rome that put the Apostle Paul to death. Nero, as you know, was a great destroyer. You know the stories of how that he took Christians and uh, lit them on fire, put them on stakes and lit them on fire to light his gardens in the night. At one time, in a, on a stretch of road for 70 miles distance, the head of a Christian was placed on either side of the highway with a stake leading all the way up to Rome. Christian doctrine was a threat to Rome. Soul liberty was damaging to them. It was damaging to emperor worship. That would lead to Rome's demise if Christians are allowed to preach. Christians would have also stopped slavery in, uh, in that time. 60% of the Roman Empire was enslaved. And Christianity would have destroyed all of that. And so they said, we've got 
to stop Christians or else we destroy the whole social structure of the empire. But then there came a time when Rome officially recognized Christianity, Christianity. Um, Constantine recognized that if you can't beat them, then you need to join them. And so he joined Christianity with paganism of the Roman Empire and then we had invented the horrible monstrosity of Roman Catholicism. Now, oddly enough, Christians who had been mercilessly persecuted themselves became the new persecutors. Those who fought for soul liberty became the destroyers of it because they began to persecute real Christians. And so Constantine and Catholicism became the greatest enemies of soul liberty that the world has ever known. Rome is a false church intent on destroying the true church and forcing it under the control of its bishops. Now, from that point of the wedding of the Roman state with the apostatized Catholic church, the Roman church began the systematic murder of Baptists. Now, an interesting story in this is how that Augustine went to Britain and tried to bring British Christians under the authority of Rome. And until he went, there wasn't any such thing as a Roman Catholic in Britain. And uh, he, he went to Britain and started, a, and started with a series of congenial compromises, but the Baptists in Britain would not take the bait. Rome is always compromising about things. They aren't really concerned about truth. They're more concerned about power. So they'll compromise in any way they can to gain power. At that time, there were over 300 Baptist churches that were in Britain, and they spurned Augustine. They told him to go back where he came from, not to bother them again. But Catholicism is a vigorous conqueror, and so he did come back, and Rome persecuted British Christians until they drove the church underground. Rome has never been a friend of soul liberty. And Augustine's compromise was this. Let us, let the church, let our church think for you. Let us tell you what you need to believe. You don't have the ability to interpret Scripture. There was a Donatist pastor at that time who affirmed soul liberty. He said, Christ persecuted no one. He was for inviting men to faith. Why do you not permit every man to follow his own free will? Christ, in dying for men, has given Christians the example to die, but not to kill. Now, the Donatist controversy was big. They tried to retain the freedom of worship as conscience dictates, but they lost that fight against Catholicism and their property was confiscated. Many of them were imprisoned and killed because they wouldn't bow to Rome. And the Donatists, that's one of the names by which Baptists at that time were called. But I do need to explain that because we have to be careful in accepting Donatists into Baptist history uh, unfortunately, much, much of church history has been written by Roman Catholics, and so you can just imagine how biased they are. Uh, many, many of you have probably read Fox's Book of Martyrs. The Roman Catholic Church insists or denies that any of that happened on the scale that John Fox said that it did. They also deny the extent and the effect of the Spanish Inquisition. But since this is not purely a history lesson, we don't have time to go into that, to tell you how terrible that it was. But returning to the Donatists, we have to be careful about accepting that label for Baptists because with Rome, uh, the tendency was to lump all heresies under one name. 
And so Donatus came to stand for just about any heresy that was going. Many things that we wouldn't actually affirm. Many things that we count as heretical, Donatus believed. But among those Donatists, there were true Bible-believing Christians. There were Baptists that were among that group. And these are the ones that fought so hard against Rome. But Rome looked at what these Baptists believed, and they just lumped it in with all the rest of the heresies. And that's how we have questions about whether Donatists believe what Baptists do today. But to move forward in history, the same persecution uh, extended to other different names that Baptists went by for under for hundreds of years of history. Rome didn't believe in soul liberty. And it was never a question with them whether people should be allowed to worship according to their conscience and to their heart. And so Rome was very, very strictly opposed to having people have the Bible, a Bible that they could read and interpret Scripture. You see, the Bible is an enemy that exposes Roman Catholicism. The Pope becomes an emperor with no clothes when people are reading the Bible because there isn't a thread of Roman Catholic doctrine that will cover his shame. So moving forward in history then, in the 14th century, we find this to be one of Rome's chief projects, and that was to keep the Bible out of the hands of the common people. Don't translate it into the common language. The popes insisted that the Bible should never be translated out of Latin. And the reason they didn't want it to be is because Latin was a dead language. Only the church people, the, the Church of Rome, knew, actually knew Latin, and scholars knew Latin. Common people didn't know it. And so they would know what the Bible said. Rome would have to read it to them, if they did at all. And they said, you can't put the Bible into the people's hands. They can't interpret that. We don't want them to find out the truth. But John Wycliffe decided that he wanted to translate the Scriptures from Latin into the Middle English of his time. And so his plan was to widely distribute Bibles to those uh, common people to read. Uh, he was slightly ahead of the printing press that would have made that easily available, which it did. In fact, when the printing press was, was made, the first book that came off the presses was the Bible, the King James Bible, in fact. Well, the printing press then helped to pry Rome's cold fingers away from a Bible that they so uh, desperately tried to keep shut. And eventually the Bible did get out, and it fueled the Protestant Reformation, and the Reformation went a long way to giving us the Bible as Luther translated the Scriptures into German and Tyndale translated it into English. And now the Bible was in the people's hands. Throughout history, there have always been people who kicked against the pricks uh, of this determined Catholicism to get the Bible out into the people's hands. And so the Protestant Reformation and the printing press were two things that brought the world out of the dark ages of Catholicism into the enlightenment of Western civilization. And you know the idea behind all of this? The idea is soul liberty. Let the people choose what to believe. Let them read the Scriptures for themselves. Well, it seems now that everything is well. Now the Bible is printed. Now it's out from under the hands of Roman Catholics who try to keep it closed. So everything is well. Only everything is not well. Because Protestantism, although willing to give us the Bible, did not give up the idea that there should be a church-state government. That was also their system. So the Roman church under Constantine was the one that fostered church-state government, church-state union, Effectively, that means that the church is the arm of the state, or 
if you're the state or the church rather the state is the arm of the church depends on who you're talking to if you're talking to the government leaders then the church is the arm of the state if you're talking to the church then the state is the arm of the church doesn't make any difference either way it's the ruination of soul liberty both of those are against soul liberty so the state took the authority then to enforce the state church so that rejection of religion was the same as rejection of the state and that is anarchy so protestants kept that idea they kept the church state government and you see that with luther and calvin luther began or established the state church of germany uh, which is lutheranism presbyterianism became the state church of switzerland and then some of the other countries of europe of course had state churches as well you still have the roman catholic church as well and then in england henry the eighth was having his issues with the pope and uh, he had his divorces and and all of that so he decided that he would start his own church that's the church of england which of course is a state church Today, I have no idea why anyone would ever want to call themselves an Anglican or an Episcopalian when they know that their church was started by a murderous adulterer. That's a hard thing to figure out. But a state church always does what? A state church always persecutes. It's always an enemy of soul liberty. And so Protestants became enemies of soul liberty. And it's in that setting that Baptists begin to be the defenders of soul liberty. At first, Baptists were happy to see the Protestant Reformation come because it appeared that there would be some relief from persecution. Also, Protestants had latched on to some of the beliefs that Baptists had been teaching for centuries. I mean, if you really think that Calvinism began with Calvin, then you better study history because you find it in the oldest confessions of faith of Baptists. You find they were teaching the doctrines of grace. You only have to check history to see that. But it's better still. Just check the Bible, because Jesus and the apostles were teaching it before anybody. So the Baptists then were happy to see changes that Protestantism brought, but they found themselves back in the same place, and that is back in persecution because of church-state governments. Now the argument over things like infant baptism, Baptist refusal to recognize the baptisms of Protestant churches and of Catholics alike caused much persecution, And so now Baptists are back in persecution. And that brings us to the point of history where Baptists were able, finally, to persevere in the fight for soul liberty. Baptists declared that soul liberty was a divine right. In 1612, Thomas Helwes wrote, The king is a mortal man and not God, and therefore hath no power over the immortal souls of its subjects, to make laws and ordinances for them, and to set spiritual lords over them. He is but dust and ashes, as well as we. Yet though he should kill us, we will speak the truth to him. For our Lord the King is but an earthly king, and he hath no authority as a king, but in earthly causes. And if the king's people be obedient and true subjects, obeying all human laws made by the king, our Lord the King can require no more. For man's religion to God is between God and themselves. Do you have any idea what King Helwes was talking about? He was talking about James I, the one who authorized the translation of the King James Version of the Bible. And King James didn't like what Helwes said, and so he had him in prison for the rest of his life. But that didn't stop Baptists from still pursuing what the Bible teaches about soul liberty. 
Later, there were controversies in England, such as the Act of Uniformity, the Acts of Toleration enacted by Parliament. And uh, to be fair about this, it wasn't only the Baptists that were fighting for soul liberty. The Puritans were as well. And they were, many of them were thrown out of their churches. You have men like John Bunyan, for instance, who, uh, because he defended the right to preach according to the Word of God and according to what he believed that the Bible taught and from the dictates of his own heart, Bunyan was put in prison for 13 years for doing the simple thing of preaching to 20 people without government approval. Now, it was just before the time of Bunyan and just after the translation of the King James Bible that there was a group of dissenters called the Pilgrims who decided that they would leave Holland and religious persecution that they experienced there, and they would go to seek religious freedom in America. So they went to England, and they picked up a ship in 1620 in Plymouth, England, called the Mayflower, and those pilgrims sailed to America. And included in that group of Protestant pilgrims were Baptists, a very small number of Baptists. The majority of them were still Protestants, still believing in a state church government, And so they came to America looking for freedom of worship, but really what they wanted was only the freedom to begin their own state church government. And so that's what they did in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Well, it was then the Baptists that were among that group started to look for religious freedom, and uh, they began to be persecuted. Baptists have always looked for soul liberty, but they began to be persecuted. Uh, And eventually, they left the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They were banished from it. And so they began their own colony. And at that time, the only colony in America that had religious freedom was Rhode Island. And that was populated by Baptists. Then many years later, when America entered into the Revolution, the wording of the Declaration of Independence was no guarantee of religious freedom. The Declaration said, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, despite that warning, the Declaration of Independence had no designs towards soul liberty, freedom of religion. Now, when the United States won the Revolutionary War, The Constitution still did not include a guaranteed right of religious freedom. During the Revolution, Baptist preachers paid a a very, very large piece of securing uh, victory in the Revolution. Baptist preachers stirred up their their constituents, their congregates, to fight in the the Revolution, and they saw the greater good. Uh, They saw the value of freedom, even though while they were fighting for freedom, Baptist preachers were still being imprisoned in the United States or in the colonies. Now, when the war was over, the efforts of Baptists were recognized. And so as a reward for the help of Baptists, we had an advocate in Patrick Henry who took up the cause of religious liberty. Thomas Jefferson also 
recognized what Baptists had done. He acknowledged their contribution to the war effort. And so Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson together introduced legislation to the Virginia state legislature, and Virginia became the next state to recognize religious freedom. So then you have two, uh, two of the states that have religious freedom. That's Rhode Island and also Virginia. And then by the year 1796, religious freedom became a guarantee for all Americans when there was an amendment made to the Constitution. The Bill of Rights secured religious freedom for us all. And so with that, state churches ended. Soul liberty prevailed, and now we have the right in the United States to worship God as we choose. And the long and the short of that is that you are able to worship God as you choose because of the efforts of Baptist people. We're the ones that spurred on the fight for religious liberty. And now in America, Christians, Jews, Muslims, even Satan worshipers can worship God any way that they choose or not at all. And that is what soul liberty is all about. Now an interesting footnote to this story is how that Presbyterians in America who believed in a church-state government, I mean, if you read the old Westminster Confession of Faith, you'll see that it still, that it did contain the right of magistrates to enforce religious capitulation. And uh, what the Presbyterians in America had to do was to change their attitude towards that. They had to change the Westminster Confession as it's used here to no longer reflect uh, the, the idea of a state church, but also to agree that the Bible teaches soul liberty. However, there is one huge group of those who call themselves Christians who still do not believe in soul liberty. And they still do believe that religion should be forced on the people. Now, they've accepted that they can't any longer do it in America, but given half a chance, they would do it again. That is Roman Catholicism. They've never been convinced that they should give up the idea that you can force people to a certain religion. And so uh, the Roman Catholic Church are the same ones that ran the Crusades, the same ones that gave us the Dark Ages, the same ones that started the Inquisition, that killed and maimed millions of people who were true believers. And the Roman Catholic Church is primed to do it again. If you don't believe it, read the book of Revelation. Read Revelation chapter 17. Rome right now is holding out hope that Francis will become the compadre of the Antichrist to enforce a state church or a world church, a world religion upon all people. And at the head of that world religion is going to be the Pope himself. Roman Catholicism never has and never will be a friend of soul liberty. Well, the last thing I want to share with you tonight is where is... Or what is the state of religious freedom in America today? And there's one word for that, eroding. There's one phrase for that, it's on the way out. Now we see how quickly it's eroding in the rapid, lightning-quick ascension of the gay-lesbian agenda. There was a floodgate that was opened last year when the Supreme Court decided on gay marriage. And just like predicted, morality and freedom has come crashing down. There is a new morality that's taken over, and it has redefined objections based upon religious beliefs, that is, based upon our soul liberty. It's redefined those objections as human rights violations. Now it's immoral. 
and, and soon it will become illegal to teach against the gay agenda because of human rights. Now, you read the papers. You listen to what's going on. Uh, you, you know how, how uh, insane that this has become. And I read an article uh, not long ago that, that, pinpoint, that pinpoints this exactly. I can't read the whole article. I wish that I could. It's all very good. But let me just tell you a little bit about it. Carl Truman is the one who wrote this. And many of you probably have no idea who Carl Truman is. But uh, I believe that he is still a professor at Westminster Seminary. But he wrote this article, and uh, he tells about a man here in California, a uh, little ways away from us, down in Bakersfield. This man is the um, pa- a pastor of the Reformed, one of the Reformed Baptist churches in, in Bakersfield. And uh, as you know, the state has passed a law that mandated gender-neutral gender bathrooms. Well, the school board in Bakersfield had to approve that law, uh, they had to meet to do that for their school district. That was necessary under California law. And so that was against the conscience of this man, uh, who is a Reformed Baptist pastor, who also happened to be the head of the largest uh, high school or largest school district in the state of California. He was the head of it. And uh, he was a, he's a very conservative man, of course, and agreed by all, both by liberals and conservatives, to be the most effective school administrator that that district has ever had. And so he was told that because uh, he could be held personally sued, uh, he could be personally sued, rather, and the insurance company for the school board would not defend him, that he would have to resign from the school board, that he was breaking the law, and therefore the, the school board said, you've got to resign. Not only did they say he was breaking the law, they said you're a bigot because of what you believe. And so you've got to resign. And that's, that's, even though thousands of parents, the majority of parents in Bakersfield said, we don't want that law in our books, but you couldn't do anything about it. Now let me quote to you the conclusion of this article. It says, thus it is in modern America, confident pluralism assumes either a balance of power or a basic common decency between the various sides of cultural debates. Now, let me stop there for just a moment, just briefly if you don't understand what we're saying here is that pluralism of course is the idea that there are many as we taught the last couple Sundays there are many uh, different truths nobody has actually a corner on truth there are many truths well if you have a system that says there's many truths then all these different truths have to respect the others who have a different truth right that's what pluralism is your truth is good my truth is good so we all respect one another this is what he's talking about Pluralism, confident pluralism, assumes either a balance of power or a basic common decency between the various sides of cultural debates. The balance and decency no longer exist, nor does it matter that there might be a democratic majority supporting the dissenters in whatever public square conflict occurs. Power is not a function of numbers anymore, if it ever was. It is a function of organization and of having one's hands on the levers of cultural and legal power. Expect no quarter in the conflicts that are already upon us. It's time to face the fact and abandon the myth that the world is run by people who respect difference and diversity and that all we need do is to behave decently in order to win their respect and earn their favor. They do not think that way. They never think that way. And they will crush those who do by any means necessary. 
That's the state of religious freedom in America. The state's taking it away. And so what happens is the religious majority, the religious majority must succumb to the state's definition of human rights. Now, we all have the same rights that we had before, except this one, the right to think differently. We don't have the right to think differently from the state, not from these people who are now making the laws. So they grant no soul liberty to anyone who disagrees with their agenda. And so we are the bigots of hate speech, and they are the humanitarians. And so what we have here, as I'm standing here talking to you tonight, is a pulpit of hate speech. Because we disagree with them. They give us no soul liberty at all. It's disappearing. Now that Supreme Court decision has torn us from the moorings of our Constitution that granted us religious freedom. Now the queer agenda now is gunning for the religious schools that teach against homosexuality and that say you can't allow that kind of a lifestyle on the campus today. The state was actually on the verge of of passing a law that said that religious schools who taught such things had to ask for an exemption from the state. That they would have to, to submit their curriculum to the state for approval and then was no guarantee that they would get it. None of this has anything to do with our 501c3 designation. It just doesn't matter. And that's because the courts have, have pierced the constitutional protection for religious liberty. So the only thing that saved that law from happening, you may have seen it in the paper just a few days ago, the only thing that saved that law from happening was the state figured they couldn't defend themselves against the lawsuits, that there would be so many that it would cost too much. But you know what will happen? Soon they're not going to care anymore. They won't care anymore how much it costs. That, that gay agenda, the liberal agenda, is going to take over. They don't care how much it costs. So what's next? What comes next? Well, after religious schools comes the church. The insurance companies are already telling us as pastors, we can't defend you any longer on this. It costs too much money. We can't do it. And so there will be lawsuits that come that, that we can't afford to defend ourselves against. There will be laws passed that we can't comply with. And so the lawsuits that we can't afford, even if we could, we won't win them. And so what's happened is the United States has flipped. Christian morality is no longer the morality. We're, uh, we're now the ones who are morally deficient. Can you believe that? We are the morally deficient people. And that is pounded into the heads of public school students every single day. And our news media tells us that, or tells students and tells everybody else that Christians are the ones who are the villains. We're the ones that are wrong. It's often been said, and Baptists have said this, you can't legislate morality. But it's been done. Only it's not our morality. It's their morality. Now that becomes the law of the land. And so what it, this all amounts to is the ruination of soul liberty in America. And what's happening, folks, is we are systematically being rolled back into the dark ages on soul liberty. But we will stay within our limitations. We still trust in God. We have no liberty at all, except it agrees with God. And that's good enough for me. Let's pray. Father, we look into these different situations that we've been talking about tonight. And we're saddened by what's happened in our country. It seems like 
there's not a thing that we can do about it. The harder we try, the worse it becomes. This is where we have to learn to truly and sincerely trust you with everything that we have. Persecution may come to us. It will, because the world has always been against soul liberty. It comes from religious institutions. It comes from the government, from all sides. It comes crashing down upon us. No one wants soul liberty but those who believe in Jesus Christ and know him sincerely as Savior. We know the world's going to stand against us, but we have no fear because we know there is a sovereign God who controls it all. If we all die right here tonight because of our belief, that's okay. We've stood for what was right, and in eternity that is what's going to count. We will all give an account of ourselves to God. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we had better stand firmly on these beliefs that we have. We will not compromise with the world, no matter what comes. If it means losing a building, if it means losing our incomes, if it means having to meet in a cave somewhere, we'll still do it because we are believers in Jesus Christ and we have eternity in our hearts, and that's all that matters. Help us, Lord. We know there's a fight that's coming. We're already in the fight, but we know it's going to get worse. So help us, Lord, not to wring our hands and to sit down and cry about these things and as if we have no hope. No, we have every hope that a person could ever hope to have, and that is in Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. Bless your people, Lord. Thank you for those who want to stand firm on the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.